scriptures, why don't you go ahead and grab that and open up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. We're returning to our exposition in Philippians. I really did enjoy the last several weeks being able to focus in on the topic of spiritual gifts, and it's a delight now to return and hopefully close out the book of Philippians. And as you're turning there, as we return to the exposition of Philippians, we're going to find that Paul is going to conclude this wonderful letter, and he does it by issuing several exhortations. And each of these commands are aimed really at helping the Philippians pursue spiritual stability. Look at verse 1 there with me. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, loved and long for my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. And you say, in this way, what does in this way mean? Well, everything that Paul has said for the last three chapters. Paul has talked about the importance of standing firm in the gospel. To stand firm against the threats to the gospel. To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. To think like Christ thought, with humility. Every single one of Paul's commands to this church has the aim of increasing their joy in the Lord and their unity among one another. And the reason why we as a church have taken up the study of Philippians is because we want the same thing. We want to be spiritually stable. We want to find our joy in the Lord. We want to grow in our spiritual maturity, which means we want to grow in our love for the Lord and love for one another, if we can just simplify it. And the reality is, is the more spiritually stable we are, then the more unified we'll be. The, un, the more unwavering we'll be in our witness, the more uncompromising we will be, even as we live in a world that hates Christianity and hates the church. But if we fail to grow in spiritual maturity, then we will be characterized by not stability, but instability. We'll be characterized by vacillation and division. And so we come to the book of Philippians really to be informed, to, to live out the principles and truths that are found here. And so you ask the question, how can we press on towards spiritual stability? And Paul answers that with these series of imperatives here at the beginning of chapter 4. And he fires them one right after the other. They just come in rapid-fire succession. And at first glance, these exhortations, these commands, they might seem to be just rote repetition of religious people. Make sure you do this. Don't do that. But look at them closely with me. They're actually commands to help us pursue true biblical stability and joy. Verse 1, we must stand firm in the Lord. In verses 2 and 3, we must be devoted to loving unity within the body. Verse 4, we must have an unyielding pursuit of joy in the Lord. Verse 5, we must adopt the spirit of efficacious gentleness. Verse 6, we must reject anxiety and replace it with thankful prayer. Verse 7, as a result of all these things, then we're going to experience the kind of peace that Paul says surpasses all understanding, all comprehension, and it's the kind of peace that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then there in verse 8 and verse 9, Paul concludes with a reminder of the importance of how we're to be thinking rightly and living godly. So what chapter 4 is doing, it's waving the flag 
And it's saying, this is how you, Christian, are to grow in your spiritual stability. And the last time that we looked at this passage in Philippians, we talked about how there was a threat to their stability. There was a threat to their unity, and it centered on two ladies. It wasn't external. It wasn't from the world. It wasn't from the government. It was internal. It was happening within the context of their own church family. In verses 2 and 3, Paul called out those two women in the congregation. You remember, he urged Eodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And he enlisted either a member of the church or members of the church to come alongside them and to help with peacemaking and getting rid of this disunity that was going on. And what we learned from the last study in Philippians is that disunity, it is a serious threat to our church. Disunity is a serious threat to the stability and the steadfastness of our church. And we said, listen, if we have issues with one another, problems, divisions, divisiveness, if there's anger, if there's dissension that's going on in our church, then we will be a terrible witness. And so we can't be sitting next to someone holding a grudge. We can't be sitting next to someone with an unforgiving spirit. If that's true, then when people come in and observe and watch our lives, they won't think much of our Savior. And so what's the solution to all this? The solution is in the next verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. And as you think of all of the topics in the Bible, all the things that the Bible covers, that topic of joy has to be one of the most frequent that the writers of both the Old and New Testament come back to. We say, well, what does the Bible teach about joy? Well, let's start with Jesus. His main aim in everything that he taught was the joy of his people. Listen to his words in John 15. It says this in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he writes this. He says this. These things I have spoken to you, so that my, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Jesus is interested in you maximizing your joy in who he is. Not only that, but joy is what God fills us with when we trust Christ. Romans 15, 13. The Bible describes the kingdom of God as a kingdom of joy. Romans 14, 17. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Joy is the aim that the apostles wrote about in everything that they did, 2 Corinthians 1.24. Becoming a Christian is finding joy that makes you willing to forsake everything else because it is such a great earth treasure. God himself is our joy. Joy will overtake all sorrow for those who trust Christ. Joy in God outshines all earthly joys, Psalm 4-7. If your joy is in God, no one can take your joy away from you, John 16-22. God calls all nations and all peoples to join in his joy as he offers it to all who believe. Really, the whole Christian message from start to finish is about the good news of great what? Joy. And we fast forward to the end of time, the culmination of all things, and we learn that at Christ's second coming, 
those who are in Christ will enter into the indestructible joy of our Master. That's just a small sample. The Bible everywhere is so saturated with this idea of joy. In fact, one commentator, William Barclay, wrote this. He says, There is no virtue in the Christian life which is not made radiant with joy. There is no circumstance and no occasion which is not illuminated with joy. And then he says, A joyless life is not a Christian life. For joy is one constant recipe for Christian living. Now let me just pause right here and ask this question. When you hear all this, how do you respond? Especially when you hear that your salvation should bring you joy and sanctification should bring you joy and your future glorification should fill you with joy. But what happens if you're sitting here this morning and you say, but I'm not experiencing that. I don't feel joyful. But what, what then? Does that mean that you're not a Christian? Does the fact that you're more melancholy mean that you're less of a Christian? Does the fact that you're not as bubbly as your brother or sister sitting next to you mean that there's something wrong with you? Maybe. But maybe not. And all of those questions are very important. I think Paul addresses each of them here in Philippians 4 and verse 5. Let's read that together. Philippians 4. Four or five say this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Father, we need so much help by the power of your spirit to understand, to comprehend, to think rightly about this precious truth here. So would you please come and help us to not only learn, but to obey and to do so with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our main idea if you're taking notes. Philippians 4, 4 through 5, what Paul does here is he offers two positive alternatives to division. Joy and gentleness. Both joy and gentleness increase our unity and they expand our witness. Let me say it again. Both joy and gentleness increase our unity and they expand our Witness. So we're just going to look at these two commands in verse 4 and verse 5, and I've outlined it this way. First, the command to rejoice. We're going to look at the repetition of the command, the root of the command, the range of the command, and then the reiteration of the command. And then we'll focus our attention on the command to reveal gentleness. How we're to be gentle in all things, gentle to all men, and gentle because the Lord is near. That's where we're going. Well, let's start with the command to rejoice there in verse 4. This, first of all, is a repeated command. Rejoice. Eighteen times in this epistle, Paul says rejoice or uses some cognate of that word. The apostle, it's really easy to see once you start reading that he's a joyful man. Paul prays with joy in 1.4. He rejoices that Christ is being preached in 1.18. It says he presses on in ministry for the progress and joy of their faith. He receives joy when they share the same mind and stay unified in 2.2. It was because of joy that he did not run in vain, it says in 2.16. He reminded the Philippians of the same things to safeguard their joy in 3.1. He actually calls his converts his joy and crown in 4.1. 
And he expresses his joy in their kindness and generosity toward him in chapter 4, verse 4, in chapter 4, verse 10, in chapter 4, 18. Philippians is full of joy, but Paul just doesn't mention his own joy. He actually commands them to be joyful. And he's already done this twice. So back in 2.18, he says, You also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And there in three one, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. But as Paul comes to the conclusion of this letter, in these closing seven commands, two of them, again, are rejoice, rejoice. And what I want you to notice about the list of commands here is that they're all about perspective. Paul has been laboring hard to get us as Christians to think a certain way. He wants the Philippians to be of the same mind with one another and with Paul and especially with the Lord Jesus. And so he provides himself as a model. And what we know is that apart from Christ, there's no better model than the Apostle Paul. And that's important because each command that Paul gives the Philippians, each command is a demonstration of his love to say, I know what's best for you because the Lord has told me, and it is to increase your joy in him. You see, the Apostle had incredible credibility with the Philippians. Just think back to how the church was started. He shows up to the city of Philippi. There is no synagogue. There is no gathering. But he's not discouraged because he goes down to the river where some ladies are gathered to pray. And he's full of joy. That there are some believers here. And the church starts right there. And that fills Paul with joy. And then you remember that he healed the young girl who was demon-possessed. And what happens? Does he get congratulated? Does he thank? No, instead a mob rises up. And they take him before the court. And he and Silas are accused of sedition. They strip them off their clothes. They beat them with rods. They throw them into prison. And you say, what does Paul do then? Does he complain and does he cry? No, he's actually in prison. And at midnight, the Bible says that both he and Silas begin to sing out of joy. And it's that singing, it's that testimony and witness that the Philippian jailer actually gets saved. You see, Paul always seems to be rejoicing, even in the midst of the worst circumstances. It was this joyful witness. It was this gospel proclamation that continued to see people come to faith in Christ. And even now, as he's writing, he finds himself once again in a Roman prison. And is he sad? Is he upset? Is he bitter? Is he angry? No, he's full of joy. And so when he commands the church to rejoice, this isn't coming from someone unfamiliar with the difficulties and trials of life. He knows what it's like to suffer. Paul knows what it's like to be criticized and ridiculed and ostracized. He knows what it's like to be in constant trouble. And he gives his own testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You remember what he says there, I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless 
hunger and in thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And yet, despite all of that trouble, he models for the church how you can still rejoice in the most difficult situations. And listen, just this morning, I've already talked to a few people. You might not be in prison, but you certainly know what it feels like to be in the dungeon of despair, to be around oppressive walls, and feel like there's no way of breaking out. Some of you are chained to poor health. Others are behind the bars of disappointment. And you feel the weight of a sin-stained world. The question is, can you still have joy? Can you still have joy in perilous predicaments? Well, according to Paul, what he says here is that it's not only possible, but the Spirit of God empowers you to have perpetual joy. And you say, but how is that possible? How is it possible? Well, pay close attention to the text, because the command simply is not just to rejoice. There's a necessary qualifier here. We saw the repetition of the command. Now let's look at the root of the command, and it's right there in the verse, rejoice in the Lord. That's the key. Not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. We don't rejoice in our circumstances, because situations and circumstances don't always make things feel good, do they? Some of you right now are in a season of life where you're experiencing tremendous difficulty, disappointment. For some of you, even despair. And we don't ignore those things. The Bible doesn't ignore them. The Bible tells us there's a time for laughter and there's also a time for what? For weeping. There's a time for sorrow. The truth is, sad things do happen. And I think of the members of our church with major medical issues this year, financial troubles, the loss of a job, the loss of a parent, the loss of a child. The Bible says that we're to weep with those who weep. And even if you are not experiencing pain yourself, we clearly have an obligation to hurt with one another. That's a way to love one another. But again, despite all of that trouble, all that life throws at us, we can still rejoice in the Lord. You see, Paul's aim here is to catapult the Christian out of their circumstances into that realm of Christian joy, which is untouchable. In the words of the Puritan writer, Walter Crandock, he says this, you take a saint, you put him in any condition, and he knows how to rejoice in the Lord. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because our joy doesn't come from the world. Our joy does not come from our circumstances. Our joy comes from the Lord himself. Look, the world can never take away your joy because it never gave you your joy in the first place. And this is the major difference. We've talked about this between joy and happiness. Happiness is, depends on your happiness. But our joy is in the Lord and what He is doing. So happiness that comes from the world, if what's happening is good and our happenstance is good, then yeah, I guess we're good. We're happy. But if our happenstance
circumstances are not good, then happiness is gone, and that is not how joy works, because joy is supernatural, and joy is spiritual. Listen to what Dr. MacArthur says. He says, Christian joy is not a giddy, superficial happiness that can be devastated by illness, economic difficulties, broken relationships, or the countless other vicissitudes and disappointments of life. Instead, it flows from the deep, unshakable confidence that God is eternally in control of every aspect of life for the good of his beloved children. A confidence rooted in the knowledge of his word, God's character, the saving work of Christ, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, divine providence, spiritual blessing, the promise of future glory, answered prayer, and Christian fellowship all cause the believer to rejoice. And did you notice? MacArthur highlights the Trinitarian nature of our joy. It's important to know that even though Paul has Christ in mind here, our joy comes from the Father. Our joy is in the Son. That joy is applied by the power of the Spirit. So it is our triune God who is the source of our joy, the, the sphere of our joy, the object of our joy. And that right there should encourage you this morning. Knowing that our triune God is sovereign and he's in control. Knowing him should be the epicenter of your joy. And so this morning, whatever is going on, whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty you have, you should be reminded to rejoice in his beauty and his majesty, in his wisdom and providence, in his greatness and his gentleness toward you. You need to rejoice in his promises and his provision, his love and his lavishness toward each and every one of you. You see, joy comes when you consider all that Christ is for you. And not only that, but we rejoice in the Lord because of all that he's currently doing. Look there at verse 5. We can rejoice in the Lord because he's near to us. Verse 6 says that he's always answering prayer. Verse 7 says he's giving us peace. Verse 10 and 19 tell us that he's always meeting our needs. Verse 13 tells us that he gives us all the strength and enablement we need to honor him. And again, all of that is just a short little sample in a paragraph. And we have an entire Bible that tells us how faithful and good our God is. And that is reason to rejoice. Look, if we stop and just meditate on Christ, then we will rediscover our joy. If we think about his character and his care for his children, and don't just set our mind on our circumstances, we'll be reminded of the joy that belongs to us. This is exactly what Yodia and Syntyche forgot. When you think about their conflict and their division, they weren't thinking about the Lord. They weren't rejoicing in him. No, instead, they were divided over this conflict. They were considering themselves as more important. And we have to keep coming back to the context and putting this in its context. Paul is dealing with disunity in the church, and the command to rejoice in the Lord is not only the key to life, but it is the antidote. Listen to this. It is the antidote of broken relationships. Because if Eodia and Syntyche stopped spending so much time wrangling with one another and rejoicing in the Lord, there would be no issue. Their 
satisfaction was more so in being right, or being innocent, or being vindicated, or trying to get other people to side with them. But listen, church family, Satan, if you haven't figured this out, he loves to subtly supplant your source of satisfaction, and he does this every single day. He loves to create disunity and division and dissensions and distractions, and he'll do whatever it takes to try to dislodge your joy in the Lord. You say, well, Don, how does he do that? Well, he just tempts you to think that you need to go to war with someone else and that you need to win. You need to be right. You need to be vindicated. But God's word tells us, no, you just need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. You say, Dom, I, I know that verse. I'm familiar with it. I have it memorized. But think about this. Jesus was obedient to go to the cross because of the promise of the joy of his obedience. He endured the cross for you and me. He was obedient to the Father's will because on the other side of that obedience was what? Joy. You say, okay, well, I know I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. I need to remember my joys in the Lord. And that seems fairly easy to do. It seems especially easy to do when everything's going well. But look at what Paul does. He ups the ante here. He says that we are to do this not sometimes, not half the time, not most of the time. What does he say? You are to rejoice in the Lord always. You see, we can rejoice when things are great. But what Paul adds here won't allow us to limit our joy to only the good times. And so here's the range of the command. The word rejoice is in the present tense. Keep on rejoicing. This is today, all day, every day. We are to practice continual habitual rejoicing in the Lord. And Paul says we are always to do this. And your response might be, well, that must be hyperbole. Now, that seems a little bit unrealistic to be rejoicing in any and every situation all the time. I mean, is perpetual joy really attainable? And how in the world can you command someone to always feel a certain way? And here's where we have to be very clear with what we mean by rejoice. See, if we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord and to do it always, then we must really know what rejoicing means. Paul is not saying that we should never feel sad. Obviously, Jesus wept. Instead, what Paul is advocating is focusing on the blessing we have in Christ and being grateful, grateful for all that he's doing, regardless of how sad we feel. Joy, one writer said, is like a thermostat. And the contrast is happiness is like a thermometer. You know the difference? One controls and one just describes. You see, the thermometer of your happiness can go up and down by what happens, but we regulate our lives with joy. Joy is not a thermometer. It is a thermostat. 
that you can set in your life regardless of what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter what happens to you, you are always set on joy because your joy is something that is consistent, immutable, unchanging. So to be always rejoicing doesn't mean that you have to fake having fun. It just means we have to remember that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're securing Him. And when we remember that, church, then it's always time to rejoice, no matter what's happening. What you have in Christ, listen, will never diminish. The Bible says He is the bread of life, and He is the kind of bread that never spoils and never expires, but is always satisfying. So you can sing, like we sang our first song, and you can sing, I have the joy, 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 where? Down in my heart. Where? And you have it when? Always. Always. You have it today. And it's here to stay. And that truth, it does make us happy. And I've had some people say things like, that's kind of a trite song or that tune is terrible. Maybe, but the truth is unassailable. If you are in Christ, you do have the joy down in your heart. And it makes us so happy. Matthew Henry wrote this. He says, It is our duty and privilege to rejoice in God and to rejoice in Him always, at all times, in all conditions, even when we suffer for Him or are afflicted by Him. We must not think the worst of Him or His ways for the hardship we meet with in His service. There is enough in God to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst circumstance on earth. And listen, this is so worth saying, Paul says it one more time. The reiteration of the command. He says, again, I will say, rejoice. That word again is a reiteration, but it's also emphatic. You see, the reason why we repeat instructions, oftentimes like we do to our kids, is threefold. It presumes that you forgot, but it also stresses the importance of what's being said, and it assumes that the reminder will produce the desired effect. And so what Paul says is, look, church, if you didn't hear it the first time, let me say it again. This is an inspired stutter. He wants them to know that they need to be satisfied in the Lord. Why? Because rejoicing in the Lord is such a powerful evangelistic weapon. You look around the world, you think about your non-believing friends, and there's so much sadness and disappointment and despair, and Christians of all people should be the ones they look at and say, there's hope. There's hope. We don't just stand firm, church, but we stand out from the rest of the world because of our joy in Christ. The Bible says, look, we're a city on a hill. We're a lamp that's not under cover, but we're on a stand. We need to be visible. The world needs to see us and see that despite the troubles and heartaches of the world, there's always reason to rejoice in the Lord. Jerry Bridges writes this, look, the purpose of rejoicing is not so that we can feel better emotionally, though that will happen. The purpose of joy is to glorify God by demonstrating to an unbelieving world that our loving and faithful Heavenly Father cares for us and provides for us all that we need. 
Some of you are in here this morning and you're a Christian because you looked at someone's life that they shouldn't have had joy, but instead they did have joy, and that stopped you in your tracks. And you said, I want that kind of joy. I want that kind of peace. I want that kind of assurance. We need to be the same exact thing for other people. You see, it's our thinking about joy that makes all the difference in the world. And our thinking needs to be informed by the Word of God rather than the world. You see, the world has come and has hijacked both joy and love. And you say, Don, what do you mean by that? Well, the world teaches us, the schools teach us, the media teaches us that we are a slave to our emotions. And that's not true. We're a slave to our emotions rather than our emotions being servants of our will. You see, if our love and joy are controlled by emotions, then we can't really be commanded to, to love or to have joy because we just can't flip on and off our emotions. But Paul is not commanding a feeling here. He's commanding a thinking. He's commanding a willing. And in turn, the way that we think and what we will, it will produce a feeling. Alistair Begg says there are cerebral, volitional, and visceral dimensions to our joy. Our thinking about God, our thinking about ourselves, our thinking about life in general needs to be informed by God's revelation. You see, the knowledge of who God is, the knowledge of who we are, and how we relate to Him, that will determine our doing and our feeling. And when our minds are fully engaged in the truth and we allow the truth of God's Word to penetrate our hearts, then it informs our feelings. Our feelings are molded by what we think and by what we will. And so we don't isolate, we don't divorce our feelings from our thinking. In fact, we know this to be true, that oftentimes we don't feel well, or we feel sad, or we feel hopeless, or we feel, you name it, because we're just not thinking biblically. Let me give you a biblical example. Turn with me to Habakkuk. Habakkuk in chapter 3. Yeah, some of you might need a table of contents on that one. Habakkuk chapter 3. Here our brother provides us with the greatest perspective. When life doesn't seem to be going well, when things are extremely difficult, he writes this in verse 17. He says, Though the big tree should not blossom, and there be no produce on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. He writes this in 18, Yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. How can he do that? Why would he do that? It seems like God is against you and not for you. It seems like your life is terrible. It seems like you're not being blessed. It seems like you don't have prosperity. Habakkuk says, I can still rejoice. I can still exult in Yahweh. Why? Because he is the God of my salvation. So the question to us this morning, church, is this, does this describe you? This kind of attitude, does it characterize you? Are you only joyful when your external factors are positive? 
Do you think it's impossible for you to have joy when maybe your job is on the line or your health is in decline? Or do you find yourself in any situation, no matter what comes, no matter what storm hits, do you still have joy in the Lord? We need to remember that it all starts with our thinking, not our feelings. Look, our feelings are real, but they don't rule. We make our feelings subservient to what we know about the Savior. And then based on that, the willing comes, and the feeling comes. Notice what he says. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. That is volitional. It's not emotional. That is how it's possible to rejoice always. So we line our feet up with what we know about God, and we press on from there. And listen, when you have that kind of perspective, it's true. All hell could break loose around you, and it might. But you can still scream out, hallelujah, what a Savior. That would be a blessing to other believers, because other believers will see your strength, and you're joining the Lord, and it will encourage them, and uplift them, and strengthen them. But it just doesn't help one another here in the church. It's a witness. It's, it has missional impact, because non-believers will see that joy, and they'll begin to ask that question. How can I be content like that? How can I have joy like that? How can I be satisfied like that? Okay, so that's our joy. But what about gentleness? Verse 5 introduces the relational quality of our rejoicing. Look there at verse 5. It says, Let your considerate spirit be known, made known to all men. And then he says, The Lord is near. Gentle in all things. The, the Legacy Standard Bible translates this Greek word, considerate spirit. Your translation might say something else. This word appears five different times in five verses. And most of the places that it appears, it's translated as gentle. But here in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, the translators have a difficult time landing on the exact English term to use. And so we see gentle spirit in the NASB. We see reasonableness in the ESB, gentleness in the NIV, moderation in the King James Version, forbearance in the Young's Literal Translation. And you say, Don, why, why such a wide range of translations? Because... It's difficult to translate. I actually like the amplified version, which I don't go to often, but it says this, let all men know and perceive and recognize your unselfishness, your consider considerateness, your forbearing spirit. I know that sounds super clunky, but I think that captures the idea. If you think back to the division between Eodia and Syntyche, we can sum up their faction in the fact that they just wanted their own way. Each of the women was insisting on their own way. And you say, well, which one of them was right? It doesn't matter. The, the point is they weren't giving ground. They weren't being considerate of one another. They weren't patiently bearing with one another. They weren't willing to yield to one another. And that small, tiny, little personal conflict became a cancer in the whole church. You see, a considerate, yielding spirit can often dis diffuse discord before it detonates. How do you know that? Just think about your arguments with your spouse. Think about how it went from zero to a hundred, and if you just diffused it with a soft and gentle word or an apology, 
things would have gotten carried away. One writer put it this way. It said, sweet reasonableness and gentleness subdues explosive tempers and stubborn wills. That's what a forbearing person does. Rather than insisting on his own rights or her own privileges, they just concede for the sake of others. Their demeanor, their speech, their conduct demonstrate they're more interested in the spiritual good of the neighbor than in being right. So the question for you is, does that describe you? Do you yield your rights? Are you calm in conflict? Are you kind in your conduct? Are you willing to suffer a wrong? Or do you always want to apply the strict letter of the law in every situation and always be right? Paul rebuked the Corinthians because they took their grudges and their bitterness and their unforgiving, angry attitudes, and they took it all the way to court. And rather than looking to God's word and to the church to help settle the matter of disagreement, they began suing one another. So Paul writes, actually then, it's already a failure for you that you have lawsuits with one another. And then he writes this. He says, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So in the spirit of Philippians 2, considering one another is more important than yourself, that will mean sometimes that you just yield your rights. And you do it for the sake of harmony in the body. Now listen closely. This doesn't mean compromising the truth. This doesn't mean succumbing to the world's standards. Paul already said that we are to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and cursed generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And he says this, holding fast to the word of life. And so we need to realize that a forbearing person, a considerate person, a gentle person, they are not spineless, they are just selfless, which means that you make allowances. And you can do that without making compromises. Paul says, look, I'm all about truth. I'm all about justice. But you need to make sure that it's always sprinkled with mercy and grace and forbearance and consideration for others. And that's the goal. We live in such a way that we are a testimony of Christ's very own character. And Paul says that we're not only to have a gentle spirit in all things, but we're to let the spirit be known to all people. That word is skenosko, kind of like Spanish. It speaks of a knowledge, but not just mere facts. The heiress imperative drives this home. We are to do it now. We are to be, do it effectively so that others experience, by way of our interaction with other people, our gentleness. The command is don't keep your yieldness in your heart. You have to find an expression in your conduct so that others would experience the blessing as well. Let me give you a quick illustration. How many of you guys know who the Wizard of Westwood is? It's not like Harry Potter, but he's a basketball coach. Anyone know the Wizard of Westwood? John Wooden. Love John Wooden. Great basketball coach at UCLA. He tells the story of his dad. And I think the story of his dad perfectly sums up the idea here. He writes this. He says, one steamy summer day, a young farmer, 20 years old or so, he was trying to get his team of horses to pull a fully loaded wagon out of the pit. He was whipping and cursing those two beautiful plow horses that were frothing at the mouth, stomping and pulling back from him. 
He said, Dad watched for a while and then went over and said to the farmer, let me take them for you. I think the farmer was relieved to hand over the reins. First, Dad started talking to the horses, almost like whispering to them and stroking their noses with a soft touch. Then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits, while continuing to talk, very calmly and gently, as they settled down. Gradually, he stepped out in front of them and gave a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided the reins. Within moments, those two big plow horses pulled the wagon out of the gravel pit as easy as could be, as if they were happy to do it. No whip, no temper tantrums, no screaming, no swearing by my dad. He says, I've never forgotten what I saw him do and how he did it. And over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act like that angry farmer who lost control and resorted to force and intimidation. Their results were often the same. That is, there were no results. So much more can, be, can usually be accomplished with Dad's calm, confident, and steady approach. For many of us, however, the temptation, our first instinct is to act like the farmer, to use force rather than to apply strength in a measured and gentle manner. In John's eyes, his father, Hugh, was the perfect combination of immense strength and saintly serenity. I think this is what helped John Glenn become one of the best coaches, most respected coaches in basketball history. And it produced this maxim. He said, gentleness can fix in a moment what an hour of shouting fails to achieve. That's not only helpful for pastors, Dads, that's helpful for you. Moms, that's helpful for you. Older siblings, that's helpful for you. Are you characterized by a gentle and loving and patient and considerate spirit? A fellow pastor of mine wisely said this, if you're unwilling to offend others, you're not fit for ministry. Let me say it again. If you're unwilling to offend others, you're not fit for ministry. Why is that true? Because we have to speak the truth and people will be offended by it. But listen to what else he says. He says, if you're eager to offend others, you're not fit for ministry. How true is that? And then Paul just finally, he latches, he latches on this last thought, which is, we need to be gentle because the Lord is near. And you say, well, what does that mean, God? Does that mean near geographically? Or does that mean that he's near temporally? I think it's just both. Jesus is always here. He's always near. And his return is coming soon. Let me conclude with this quote from an English Puritan. He writes this. And now see what great cause we have to rejoice in the Lord and how little cause there is to rejoice in anything else. For what do we have that we do not have from him? Or what do we lack, which if we have, he must not supply? Do we have peace in all of our quarters and plen plenteousness in all of our houses? Do we have blessing in the food of our body, in the food of our ground, in the food of our cattle, in the increase of our cattle, and in the flocks of our sheep? 
Are our wives fruitful as the vine, and our children like the olive branches round about our tables? Do we have health, strength, food, clothing, and the necessities of life? And from where are all these things? James says that every good and perfect gift is from above. But to come nearer to the causes of Christian rejoicing, does the Spirit witness to our spirit that we are children of God? Is the darkness of our understandings lightened? The obstinacy of our wills corrected? The corruption of our affections purged? Do we fill in ourselves the virtue of Christ's resurrection by the death of sin and the life of God in ourselves? He says, are our souls fully assured of the free forgiveness of our sins by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? Dare we boldly go to the throne of grace and cry, Abba, which is Father? Do we know that death shall not have dominion over us and that hell shall never be able to prevail against us? And then he concludes, Behold then, what cause we have of our rejoicing in the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you please help us to see that the more that we know you, the more secure we'll be in your joy. Father, it's just true that if we have little knowledge, we'll probably have little joy. But if we continue to grow in our understanding of your character and your promises and your will, all that will do is maximize our joy in Christ. So, Father, please fill our minds with the beauty of your promises, the wisdom of your plans, the awesomeness of your power, the glory of your mercy and grace and redemption. Lord, help us to understand that the more that we understand these things, the more stable our joy will be, the more united we'll be able to stand, and the more effective will be our witness to a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name.